Well, we're looking at the last half of chapter 14 in 1 Samuel. We're going to be reading from verse 24 to verse 52. <clears throat> it's a little bit lengthy, but I am asking, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word. This is God's holy inspired Word. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. So Saul had laid an oath on the people, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Now when all the people came to the forest, behold, there was honey on the ground. And when the people entered the forest, behold, the honey was dropping. But no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge. His father charged the people with the oath, so he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand, and he dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth, and his eyes became bright. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. And then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey? How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies that they found. For now the defeat among the Philistines has not been great. And they struck down the Philistines that day from Michmash to Aijalon. And the people were very faint. And the people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground. And the people ate them with the blood. Then they told Saul, Behold, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a great stone to me here. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Let every man bring his ox or his sheep and slaughter them here and eat. And do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and they slaughtered them there. And Saul built an altar altar to the Lord. It was the first altar that he built to the Lord. Then Saul said, Let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. Let us not leave a man of them. And they said, Do whatever seems good to you. But the priest said, Let us draw near to God here. And Saul inquired of God, Shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, Come here all you leaders of the people, and know and see how this sin has arisen today. For as the Lord lives who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. And there was not a man among all the people who answered him. And then he said to all Israel, You shall be on one side, and I and Jonathan my son will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, Do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said, O Lord God of Israel, why have you not answered your servant this day? If this guilt is in me or in Jonathan, my son, O Lord, God of Israel, give Urim. But if this guilt is in your people, Israel, give Thummim. And Jonathan and Saul were taken, but the people escaped. And then Saul said, Cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. And then Saul said to Jonathan, Tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am, I will die. And Saul said, God do so to me, and more also, you shall surely die, Jonathan. And then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die, who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. 
for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. And then Saul went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. And when Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, Malkishua, and the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Merab, and the name of his younger, Michal. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, would you bless our time in your word this morning? Would you be with us, be near us, reveal your good news to us, yourself to us. Help us to grow and to learn what it looks like to be a follower of you. Would you bless us in Jesus' name, amen. In, first, or in James chapter 4, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What is humility? What is humility? How would you define it? There's a definition that I like of humility, and hopefully maybe it's helpful to you. It's not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less. Thinking of yourself less. It's not thinking less of yourself like demeaning yourself or thinking you are unworthy or something. It's, it's instead not really thinking about yourself all that much. It's the art of self-forgetness. That's what humility is. But it's hard to be humble, isn't it? It's hard to be humble. It's hard not to think about yourself. And in the same way, it's easy to be proud. It's easy to be proud of yourself. Doesn't it say something about our natural sinful condition that our default, our natural tendency, what is easy is not to be humble, but to be proud, to gloat, to brag, to assume it's all about us and our agenda. And it makes also, it makes sense in this fallen world that in our society, in our culture, pride is often rewarded. And humility is devalued and seen as weakness. If you're humble, if you're meek, seen as weakness. But that's not the way of God's kingdom. It's not the way of God's kingdom. In God's kingdom, it's the opposite. It's the humble that are exalted. And it's the proud that are humbled. This is, the, this is essential to understand if we were to understand the message of 1 Samuel. This is the thread. This is the main point that is threaded throughout these stories that the proud is going to be humbled and the humble is going to be exalted. If you go back all the way to chapter 2, if you turn there with me, chapter 2, if you remember, we get Hannah's song, her, her prayer to God. And I told you this way back when we preached on chapter 2, that Hannah's prayer, her song, is like the table of contents 
for all of 1 Samuel. It's, it's, like, it's, it's the main point that all of 1 Samuel is unpacking these truths in her prayer. And so she begins it like this, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. If you remember, she, she was childless. She was barren. She had no children. But her husband's other wife, Penina, had children. And it was her rival. And she would put it in her face all the time. And to be barren in that day and age was, was filled with shame. And the Lord grants her a son, grants her Samuel. And this is her prayer of thanksgiving. She says, Verse 1, my mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And here is where we see this reversal of the proud being humble. She says, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble are Bind on strength. And if you go to the very last verse of her song, she says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So what she's saying is the king that's coming, that God is going to provide, is going to be humble. He's not going to be proud. He's not going to be like every king you have imagined or every king that the world creates. He's going to be humble. That God exalts those who are humble. And so we see this reversal of being pride to humility. We see this reversal on display with, with proud Saul and humble Jonathan. He is acting proudly. Jonathan is acting in humility. And so this morning what we're going to see is that God opposes proud Saul and he gives grace to humble Jonathan. So those are our Two main ideas, two points this morning. So first, let's look at Saul and the penalty of pride. How do we see Saul's pride in this chapter? What is he doing? Well, previous to this chapter, we have already seen his pride on display. Jonathan, chapter 13, takes on a Philistine garrison, the first of two, and he conquers it, and he takes it over. And he is victorious, but the word that gets put out is that Saul was victorious over the Philistines. He spins the message so that it's Saul who gets the glory. That's in uh, chapter 13. Again in chapter 13, when he is approached by Samuel for his disobedience because he didn't wait for Samuel to come back, and he sacrificed without the priest. He blames for his action everyone around him. At verses 11 and 12 of chapter 13, Samuel says, What have you done, Saul? You've, you've sacrificed when you shouldn't have. And Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash. He's pointing the finger to the people, to Samuel, and to the Philistines, and he's not taking any ownership of his actions. It's all about him. It's all about Saul. That's the essence of pride. And we see it's all about his agenda. Look at verse 24 of our passage this morning in, verse, in chapter 14. He says, he lays an oath. So they're, they're fighting, they're in the midst of, of a battle, and he lays an oath on all 
of his soldiers saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening. And listen to what he says here. And I am avenged on my enemies. Is there any word there about the Lord? No. It's about Saul's enemies. It's about him being avenged. Are you like Saul? Do you see some of that in yourself? Do you talk more? Do you talk more about what you need, what you want, what you deserve, than what God wants and deserves? When we think about Saul, when we read these stories about Saul, we need to really hold a mirror up to ourselves and say, am I like this? Do I have tendencies toward this? If you've been married before, you know that that marriage is a a sanctifying instrument in God's hands. And what I mean by sanctifying is it reveals your own sin when you're married. Because uh, you're in a relationship with someone who sees you every day, sees you in the morning, in the evening, when you're good and when you're bad, and so it's easy to see someone's sin. At one point in in, in my marriage to Hannah, she... uh, in her sanctifying way, in a godly way, she told me that I never apologize for things. Never say I'm sorry. And my first instinct when I heard that was, well, I've got to be wrong about something to apologize, right? (laughs) Isn't that the first criteria? Am I ever wrong? And the more I thought about what she said, she's right. I haven't said I'm sorry in a long time. I haven't apologized. And odds are, I'm, I'm wrong about some things. <laughs> I'm wrong about a lot. But that was pride. It was pride in my heart. And she was good to reveal that to me. And so, it's there. Believe it or not, we all have pride. Pride is the mother of all sins. right? It's the very, it's the very first sin. Adam and Eve in the garden, they wanted to be like God. They wanted to, they wanted to get away from his ways. But it's serving your own agenda. It's not seeing that you perhaps fail in some ways, that you need God's help. Another thing we see about Saul and his pride is that other people are just getting in the way. When you're prideful, other people are just hindrances to you. Again, look at verse 24. Cursed be the man who eats food until it's evening. What kind of leader of a military doesn't allow his soldiers to eat? And that's, that's not very wise. If you're going to have a very weak, weak military, he forgets about the needs of the men around him, his soldiers. And not only that, I don't know if you noticed in our passage, he forgot to get the message to his son, whom he loved, that I have this vow, if you, if you, break, if you eat any food, you're going to be cursed, you're going to die. He never got that message to Jonathan. He's not thinking about other people. He's thinking about himself and his own agenda. If he cared about people, I probably would have been on his list to tell his own son. You see, when you're prideful, when you're filled with yourself, you easily lack compassion on other people, don't you? You lack compassion. You don't think about other people's needs when your agenda is what controls you. But what made it worse is that Saul used religion to um, try to make it better. One commentator says, Saul was stubbornly religious, 
Jonathan, on the other hand, was practically God-fearing, that he did the practical things, the right things, as he feared God, and Saul is stubbornly religious. He goes to God when it suits him, but when it's most important, he avoids God. If you notice in verse 35, it says, Saul built an altar to the Lord when his people were sinning. It was the first altar he had built to the Lord. I think that's a little snide comment about Saul. This is the, very, this is the only altar he built to the Lord. And an altar was the place where you sacrificed, where you prayed. So he was stubbornly religious. It reminds me of the Pharisees in Matthew 23, when Jesus says the Pharisees tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They use religion to place heavy burdens on other people. So, Becoming more religious or or doing more religious or Christian things when you're prideful doesn't necessarily fix the problem of pride. In fact, it makes it worse. It actually blinds us more when you haven't dealt with your pride, when you haven't dealt with your heart, and you try to look and sound, and, and for everybody to see that you're religious, it blinds you all the more. It reminds me of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. From Luke chapter 18, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just, I'll read it. It's a short scene that Jesus teaches from. And he says, there's these two men and they went into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So the Pharisee is this religious man, right? Everybody thinks he's, he's supposed to do the right thing. Tax collectors were seen as hated. They were not seen as religious The Pharisee says, standing by himself, prayed thus. This is his prayer to God. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. So his immediate prayer is comparing himself to other people. I'm glad, Lord, I'm not like these other people. Despicable. And then he shows God his resume. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So his first prayer is, I'm not like this guy, and here's what I do for you, Lord. I fast and I tithe. Aren't you happy with me? But then we turn to the tax collector. Jesus says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So here we, are, we see a man who does not feel worthy to be in God's presence, does not feel worthy to even lift up a prayer to God. He knows he's a sinner, and he knows he needs a Savior. Jesus says about that man, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who, who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's the tax collector. It's the man who didn't see himself as worthy before God, that God justified. But notice what Jesus says. He who exalts himself will be humbled. And the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You've heard the saying, pride comes before a fall. That's not just a coincidence. It's a promise. God will bring down the prideful and the haughty, and he will 
lift up the humble. He will lift up the humble. Psalm 50, it says, Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. God says the most important thing he wants is a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Not a sacrifice of sin for all the bad things we do and asking for forgiveness. He wants us to obey and be thankful and call upon him when we're in trouble. What else do we see Saul do? And we see, how do we see his pride come about? Look at verse 32. So in this narrative, Saul has told them not to eat all day long until evening. Remember, uh, evening was when the Jewish day turned to the next day. So evening and then morning. So at evening, they could eat. They were released from the vow. So they were really hungry. Look at verse 32. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground and the people ate them with the blood, which was against God's law. His people sin because they're starving. I actually think the technical term in the Hebrew is hangry. They're hangry. Anyone ever been hangry before? Have you ever been so hungry that you forgot to do basic food preparation before eating? You just start devouring or waiting on food to cool? That's something our kids struggle with. and I mean, I've struggled with too. Have you ever bitten to a pizza? You didn't wait, that it's still super hot and you burn the roof of your mouth? That's where these people are, right? They're digging in because they're starving. But guess who caused this issue? Saul and his pride and his oath. The people ate the meat with the blood. Now, what does that mean? Were they eating it raw? No, they weren't eating it raw. They just hadn't prepared it properly. They hadn't drained the blood properly before eating. Now, why is that bad? Well, you see, blood was meant to be offered to God in sacrifices. The blood was supposed to be sprinkled or poured or drained upon the altar because that was supposed to mean forgiveness and atonement for God's people. It wasn't supposed to be consumed. You see, the life of the animal was in the blood. And the blood represented that life. And so, and that death of that animal. So atonement came through the, the shedding of blood. Atonement was through the blood. Therefore, they should not have eaten it. But because of his oath, he's causing more problems for the people than he's solving. It was sinful what they did. They should have waited. But he really put, is the one who put that in that situation. So what's the result? What's the result of his pride? Look at verse 37. And so he sees this happening. The priest says, uh, do whatever seems good to you. And Saul inquired of God, so he's asking God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you give them into the hand of Israel? But he did not, that is, God did not answer him that day. He gets no answer from God. That's significant. God is not responding to Saul. It's a big deal. He's not responding to his king. Why? Well, you see, God had become subject to Saul's agenda. Saul had put his agenda above God. And so he was not hearing from him anymore. And it echoes back to the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 3. When Samuel, the, the, the boy priest, is in the temple... And he's 
ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, and it says, the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Brothers and sisters, God removes his word from those he's judging. When you don't have God's word, when he's not present in your life, it's a form of judgment. It's not good. And it, and it points us to the very um, the, the reason being that God looks on the heart. That he knows what's in Saul's heart. One commentator says, to be religious was not enough in the sight of the Lord who sees inside the heart. In a couple chapters, in chapter 16, Samuel's going to come, or the Lord's going to say to Samuel, do not look on his appearance when they're looking for a new king for David. Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. Talking about people who weren't David. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. He wants to know what's going on in our hearts. Saul's heart was not devoted to to God. It was devoted to himself. In his relationship with the Lord, he was rash, he was presumptuous, and he tried to manipulate the divine will through ritual formality. That's why the kingship ended with Saul and Jonathan. And Jonathan was never going to be king. Sadly, because Jonathan would have been a great king. But this was the penalty for the pride of Saul. So that's looking at the Saul, Saul's pride. Now let's look at Jonathan. And let's look at his humility. So we'll turn now to Jonathan and the honor of his humility. You see, Jonathan has been serving God's agenda, not his own agenda. In verse 6 of our chapter 14, This is Jonathan's faith on display. He takes that garrison, the Philistine garrison, and he says, It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. You see, it wasn't about his glory. It was about the Lord's glory. And he can do anything. So Jonathan is serving God's agenda, not his own. Jonathan, though, in this scene, unknowingly breaks his father's vow. See, in verse 27 of our chapter, Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth. And his eyes became bright. You see, all the military is going through this forest and honey is dripping down from the trees. And Jonathan, not knowing about the oath, takes a little bit of the honey on his staff and, and eats it. And his eyes become bright. I don't think there's, this isn't speaking spiritually. This is just when you eat sugar, you become excited. If you've had kids, you give them candy, right? They run around. Their faces light up. They become bright. They were probably, ex- they were exhausted at this time. So any little bit of sugar or food would have really boosted uh, them. So he unknowingly breaks the vow and he's found guilty. Look at verses 43 and 44. And Saul said, cast the lot between me and my son, Jonathan. And Jonathan was taken. And Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. So he's found out. The lot has been cast. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of my staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. You see, when a king especially made a vow, he couldn't go back on that vow. Couldn't. 
It was an oath he took. But look what happens. Who helps Jonathan? It's the people. Look at verse 45. And the people said to Saul, wait a second. Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation for Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground. For he has worked with God this day. And so the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. So so Jonathan is saved by the people. He's ransomed by the people. He is given grace and not Saul. Dale Ralph Davis says, not Saul, but Jonathan has become the savior of Israel. So here we're seeing the exaltation of the humble and the promise of that coming to pass. But there's some difficulties here, isn't there? Jonathan is suffering for his father's failures, isn't he? His father's choices. Why can't Jonathan become king himself? It seems unfair, doesn't it? Del Ralph Davis says, such questions like that are normal. When we ask questions like that, they're also revealing of us. 20th and 21st century citizens of this Western culture that we've imbibed every single day, in our minds, self-fulfillment is a right. If we have enough ingenuity and discipline, our efforts should be crowned with success. And in religious terms, we're happy if God assists us in our quest of self-fulfillment. One could always use such help. But Jonathan seems to know better. The kingdom was not Saul's or Jonathan's. It was Yahweh's kingdom. For Jonathan, the kingdom was not his to seize, not his to rule, but his to serve. So maybe a tragic life isn't tragic if it's lived in fidelity to what Christ asks of us in the circumstances he gives us. It's a huge lesson for us to learn this morning. The big question for you and I this morning, if you put yourself in Jonathan's shoes, when life doesn't follow your agenda or play by your rules, what's your response? Does your faith in God's agenda kick in? That it's about his agenda and not yours? When you get that diagnosis that you were dreading, when you lose your job. When your faith in Christ is not an asset in your workplace, it actually becomes a hindrance. And people despise you for your faith. When the trajectory of your child's life doesn't go the way you want it to. Does your faith in God's agenda kick in? That's the kind of humility that shines glory on God doesn't it? When suffering and disappointment seem to take your life in a direction you never thought it would go in, you never imagined, are you prepared to say with Martin Luther, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. Are you struck by Jonathan's willingness to, to lay down and die. He says, I will die. I broke this oath. An oath he disagreed with. That's true humility. Faith says, 
God, do with me what you want. I will be faithful, and I'll leave the results up to you. That's what faith says. So the big question, as I close, is how do we get that humility? How do you and I get that kind of humility? That's tough. Where does it come from? Where can you and I get that? Well, Jonathan got it from looking to a God who keeps his promises, a God who is gracious and merciful, powerful to save, who he never doubted God was for him and would be with him. And for us, we have a vision of that promise even more clearly than Jonathan ever did, and that's in the person and work of Jesus. It's seeing that Jesus was humble in your place. The humility of Jesus Christ helps us be humble. That the king of the universe was born into a cattle stall. That the king of the universe was nailed to a cross. That the king of the universe rose again after three days. If he shows that humility to save you, a humility in your place, how can we not show humility? Christians ought to be the most humble people in the world. So it's the good news, brothers and sisters, if you look to Christ, that your pride is replaced with the perfect humility of your faithful Savior when you simply put your trust in him. You see, the people ransomed Jonathan that day because of his faithful leadership on the battlefield through his faithful trust in God. But Jonathan points forward to a Savior who wasn't ransomed, but he became a ransom. He ransomed us, you and I, by taking the fall for your sin. He laid down his life willingly for you and I. That's the kind of God that that we have. That's the blessing that we have of our Savior. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.